0: I was reading out of the book of 1 Kings in my devotional time, and I came across what I think might be one of the funniest stories that I've ever read in the Bible. And I'll just tell you at the very beginning, it doesn't sound very funny. It actually kind of begins on a pretty morbid tone. But if you, you give it just a moment, I think I can tell you why I believe it's pretty funny. So here's how the story starts. King David is about to die. That part is not funny. But right before he passes away, he brings in his son, Solomon, who's about to become the next king, and he shares some advice. And when he begins, it sounds really fatherly, very spiritual, very wise. He, he says things you would expect for David to say. He says things like be strong, keep the ways of God, walk in the commandments of God. But then you can almost see David lean in and say, Come here, a little closer. And almost in whispered tones, he shares the rest of his advice. And basically, David has a short list of people who did him wrong in this life. And he wants Solomon to settle the score when he's gone. And it's a little bit funny, it's a little bit disturbing, but I just couldn't read anything past it. So you just got to hear it for yourself. It says, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Remember, David's talking to Solomon, his son. And remember, you have with you Shammai, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharum, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahaniah. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. And David died. That's it. Those were the last words of King David. Not, not thank you Lord for the life you've given me. Not tell your mama I love her. Not eat your greens and you'll be healthy over the course of your life. No, King David uses his final words to take out a hit on one of his enemies. And it's not just that he did it, it's how he did it. Like literally David says, hey Solomon, I told this guy I wouldn't put him to death, but I didn't say you wouldn't put him to death. You're a smart guy, wink, wink. You'll know what to do with him. After I read that, I wrote this statement in the margin of my Bible. Who you are in life is reflected in who you are in death. uh, David was a man of war and life. And David is a man of war and death. The same is true of Jesus. When we look at his earthly life, Jesus is powerful, glorious, grace-filled, wise, righteous, incredibly loving. He's the complete God-man. And he is exactly the same in his death. Death did not change him. It just further revealed him. So last week, we started a 10-week series that tells the story of Jesus' final week prior to his death and resurrection, and we set everything up with the first five chapters of what I'm calling the redemptive story of God. Those five chapters were God creates everything, humanity sins and messes it up the effects of sin are felt, redemption is coming, and Passover reminds us of redemption. So today we pick up the story of Jesus as he enters Bethany and Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And our general text for this is going to be over in Mark chapter 11. But along the way, I'm going to bring in some other pieces from the other gospel writers as they provide complementing and sometimes additional insights. So at this time, Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel chapter 11. We are focused today on the events that happened on Palm Sunday plus what's taking place on Monday. These are the timelines we're working with. Palm Sunday plus Monday. We've got palm branches. That's kind of understandable. The lamb is also going to be very understandable in just a moment. Those are the pieces we're going to cover today. So let's have a word of prayer. Hopefully you're already in Mark 11, and we will begin the process. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that your Spirit walk us through these passages. God, may we remember that... That who we are in life is reflected in who we are in death. And Lord, may our eyes be so opened to who Jesus was in his earthly life prior to death and who he still is today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 11, it begins with Jesus entering Bethany on Sunday afternoon. Bethany is a small village. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It is considered to be a Sabbath's walk away from Jerusalem, which would be maybe about two miles. Now, the village is marked with some significant biblical significance. Uh, There's a lot of events that are happening. For example, this is the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Those are siblings. They were great friends with Jesus, and they find themselves at the center of a number of different biblical stories. The town of Bethany is also where Lazarus was raised from the dead. That specific event so marked that particular city that to this day, the name of the city is al Alzaria, which is Arabic for Lazarus. The town of Bethany was central to Jesus's final week prior to the resurrection. Jesus and his disciples, they would sleep and they would eat in Bethany, and then they would minister and they would mingle in Jerusalem. When Jesus rose from the dead, he led his followers to the road right outside of Bethany, and it is from that road that he ascended back to heaven. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. So John chapter 12 now adds that as Jesus arrives in Bethany, it's six days before Passover. Now that's an important statement. Now we have a timeline in place And we also have the events that are happening to help us understand what's the context? What is he walking into? So each year around this time, the the streets would be packed with Jewish pilgrims coming in from all around the known world in order to celebrate Passover right there in Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples are among that group. Now, if you were to go to the chapter just before Mark chapter 11, Mark 11 is when he enters Jerusalem or enters Bethany. But in Mark chapter 10, it shows what just happened just before he comes into the city. And there's some things in the days prior, maybe the weeks prior, that it's some pretty hard stuff. So Mark 10 would tell us that Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees on the law of Moses, on requirements for divorce, as well as on God's position on remarriage. And when he's questioned, they're not asking questions to better understand God's position. They're asking questions so that they could catch Jesus saying something wrong so that they could use it against him. Then the disciples, they found themselves in an awkward place. They, They rebuked a bunch of parents who wanted to bring their children to Jesus so that Jesus would bless them. And this incident was one, we we don't know their full heart in that. It might've been they were trying to protect Jesus's time, or or maybe they were just tired from the day. We don't know, but what we do know, according to scripture, is it upset Jesus. It says he got angry with them. And he instructs the disciples to let the, the parents bring the children. And it's in that moment that he uses what could be considered an error in judgment on their side, to teach a valuable lesson about the kingdom of God. Jesus had this uncanny ability to take a bad moment and turn it into a teachable moment. Mark 10 also tells you about what Jesus had just shared with his disciples prior to coming into Bethany. Once again, he was trying to prepare them for what he was about to experience in Jerusalem. So he told them he's gonna be betrayed. He'll be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. He's gonna be tried, he's gonna be killed, but he'll also rise again. But instead of his disciples being concerned for him, they asked him for a favor, and then they start arguing over positions of power in his coming kingdom. Think about that for a moment. He spent three years investing in this group. He's days away from his death and they're still acting selfish and self-centered, even to this point. In the weeks prior to this, Jesus' popularity was continuing to grow. Every little city and village and town he entered into, he was asked to teach and to minister and to heal, and sometimes he's confronting people, and people came from all different parts of the social spectrum. Uh, There were the social elites, and there were societies outcast. So in Mark 10, you actually have two different types of people coming. You've got the story of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus right alongside of the story of blind Bartimaeus coming. But I think that's the beautiful part of seeing the events coming together because you can tell a part of Jesus' heart in there. Jesus was not about the status of the person. He was about the person. And that's part of his character that goes all the way through what's happening in this Passion Week and also what happens to this very day. We understand Jesus is not a man for one group of people. He's the savior of the world. He spent time with known sinners, with sick people, poor people, working class people, rich people, rulers, and those who were spiritually desperate. Jesus loves people and people for the most part love Jesus. Now, I say for the most part because there's an exception here. All the way through the Gospels, you will find that prideful, self-righteous, religious people did not like Jesus very much. So it's now late Sunday afternoon, a couple of hours before sunset, when Jesus arrived in Bethany. The streets would have been packed with Jewish pilgrims. Now, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 it inserts a beautiful story. It tells us that Jesus went to a house where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had prepared a meal in his honor. And as usual, Martha was serving, Lazarus was reclining, and Mary is found at Jesus' feet. But according to John chapter 12, Mary takes out a pound of costly perfume. And she anoints Jesus' feet. When I say costly, I'm not talking $75 a bottle, $100 a bottle. Instead, this perfume was said to be the equivalent of an entire year's wages. Mary then uses her hair, the chief ornament of a woman's beauty. And she started to wipe his feet. And as she does it, there's no mention of her saying a word. She's silent while her actions speak volumes. When I reread the story several times this last week, I couldn't help but get emotional every time I read it. John chapter 12 verse three may be one of the most beautiful pictures of worship found in your entire Bible. There's no church service, There's no praise band. There's no sermon that's being preached. In fact, there's no mention of anything being said at all. It's just a grateful woman at the feet of our gracious God offering a sacrificial gift because words alone are not enough. Her actions only make sense in context. I've already told you that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were siblings. They were also friends of Jesus. But in the preceding chapter, John chapter 11, it actually tells the story of Lazarus's death and the events going up to his death And the story tells us that the sisters sent word out to Jesus, and and they told Jesus their brother was about to die. They asked Jesus to come. But the Bible tells us that Jesus stayed two more days where he was before he left to go to where Lazarus was at. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus was already dead. The crowds were already mourning. The family is grief-stricken at this point. They had numerous painful questions going through their mind, questions like, why didn't Jesus come? Why did he allow our brother to die? If Jesus healed people he had never met, why would he not heal Lazarus, his own friend, someone he knew, why would he not come? The questions are mixed with grief, they're combined with disappointment. While Jesus was nowhere to be found, His sisters watched as he took his final breath. His sisters would have been responsible to make sure he was wrapped in his burial clothes. His sisters were there as the funeral happens and as their brother is placed into a tomb. His sisters would have been there when that stone is rolled in front of the tomb and there's just this crack of light and the little bit of light, the little bit of hope that's going into the tomb, it's now shut off and it's total darkness. The sisters would have been there for every part of that and Jesus is nowhere to be found. So finally when Jesus showed up, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days And people get word back to Mary and Martha that Jesus is on the road, he's approaching Bethany. In John chapter 11, verse 20, it says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Don't let that last phrase get past you. Mary stayed at the house the woman who in other biblical stories is always found at the feet of Jesus, she now doesn't even want to be in his presence. She's hurting. She's grieving. She's mourning. She's overwhelmed with what happened. Let's pause there for a moment. Have you ever gotten so mad with God because you thought he didn't answer the way that you expected him to answer. Have you ever been mad with him because his answer was different than what you wanted? You feel like he let you down? And not only do you feel like he let you down, but you've tried to do things right in your life. You've tried to honor him with your life. You've tried to honor him in the word. You read the words, you pray, you go to church, you give your offerings, you you serve others, you, you try to care for the needs of people that are around you. And now you're in one of the most desperate, difficult moments of your life. And you're like, Jesus, if there's ever a time that I need you, it's right now and he doesn't show up the way you think he should. If you have any idea of how that feels, Mary can testify. So the Bible tells us that Jesus and Martha, they, they meet out on the road going into Bethany, and Martha comes right out the gate with it. And she says, if you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. Jesus spoke with her for just a few moments, and then he says, tell Mary to come to me. Well, they get word back to Mary, and she jumps up and she leaves the house, and those who are around her thought she's going out to the grave to continue to mourn, but she finds herself out on this road going towards Jesus, and the story tells us that she drops at his feet, again, at his feet, And through sobbing, she gets out the greatest concern of her life. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. My friends, that's an accusation. She's saying he's dead because you didn't show up. It's not because we didn't get the word to you. It's not because you didn't have the ability to do it. It's not because you couldn't find the time. My brother is dead because you didn't show up. It's an accusation. My friends, she's hurting here. She's overwhelmed. The Bible tells us Jesus was moved in his spirit. He says, where have you laid him? And as they approach the tomb, you have the shortest verse in your English Bible. Jesus wept. The terminology is not that a single tear welled up in the corner of his eyes. It is the creator weeping over his creation. Now you might know the story. They removed the stone and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And that man, his friend, their brother, the guy who had been in the tombs for four days comes walking out of the grave. That's the last moment you have with Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Lazarus. Listen, before he shows back up in Bethany in chapter 12, the next encounter you find of Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Lazarus in the same place is when they're hosting a meal in his honor. And there in the middle of the house, people all around her, not caring about what others say, not caring about what others do, not caring about the cost, not caring about the stares, about the snide remarks, Mary kneels down at the feet of her teacher and she pours this perfume over the dry, dusty, tired feet of her master. And she uses her hair and she wipes his feet, never saying a word, no words, just worship. Just worship. Imagine her sitting there with the accusations in her mind, the anger in her mind and now sitting back at the feet of the one who raised her brother from the dead. She worships. But did you know the story's even deeper than that? You see, when a person comes to the end of their life, they want to be with the people they love. Jesus knew he was days away from suffering and death. And he told his disciples about that you know what their response was? Would you give me a favor? Their response is to argue about positions of power when he comes into his kingdom. At another moment, there's parents wanting their children to be blessed and his disciples run him away. He's less than a week away from his death and his disciples still don't have his heart. Now you've got the Pharisees and they're asking him question after question after question, trying to catch him in his words. Now you've got the rich young ruler who chooses material wealth over eternal life. Each part could be discouraging. Each part could be draining. Death is less than a week away. And some wanted a favor and some wanted a blessing and some wanted to kill him and some just wanted money. But then there's Mary. She stopped to love him, she gave to him, she worshiped him, she blessed him, she focused on him. But before she could even get off her knees, Judas speaks up and he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? I got mad when I read that statement again. Now part of my anger was the fact that that wasn't his gift. You could do what you want with your gift, but when somebody else brings their gift and they say, this is what I want to give, like that's their gift. So part of me was mad with that, but then there was another part of me that I'm gonna be honest, I got upset because I could see myself in his actions. Selfishness, sinfulness, and pragmatism have often interfered with my worship. When was the last time I just came to sit at the feet of Jesus? When was the last time I came, not because I had a problem, not because I had a need, not because I had a request, but when was the last time I just came to say, I love you, I worship you, I'm grateful for you. You see, Our anger with others can sometimes be a way of deflecting attention from the sin that's in us. Our anger with others sometimes can be a way of deflecting attention from the sin in us. Sunset comes and the Jewish Sunday ends. The meal is over but the conversations are still happening. According to the other gospel writers, people are still coming to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. They, they heard the story of his resurrection. They want to see him for themselves. But listen, as they would enter the house, they might have had an agenda, but they could smell the scent, the fragrance of the woman who stopped long enough to worship Jesus. Evening comes, midnight comes. 3 a.m. comes and then sunrise. Maybe around 6 a.m. The events that happen on this day start a prophetic clock that could not be stopped. It's after sunrise now on Monday. The, The date would have been the 10th of Nisan. The celebration of Passover would begin with the selection of a lamb in exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 6 god gave very clear instructions to his people on the 10th day of nisan the father of each household is to take a lamb without blemish and without spot and bring it into the home the family was to examine that lamb for four days they were to bond with the lamb and at the end of four days They were to offer the lamb as a sacrifice before the congregation and between the evenings. That part of bringing the lamb into the home had a reason. It was to allow the family to bond with the lamb. It was to allow the the kids to pet, to touch, to connect. It was to allow the family to, to take time to see this gentle, peaceable, beautiful, lamb without blemish and without spot so that when it was sacrificed there would be the pain of recognizing the price paid for redemption that was the way it was designed now at this moment, some of the biblical names of Jesus now have more relevance and they start to make more sense. Isaiah the prophet saw this week 700 years before Jesus was born. He says in Isaiah 53:7 that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist saw Jesus three years prior and he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Peter spoke of Jesus He called him a lamb unblemished and spotless. First Peter chapter one verse 19. 27 times in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now we saw last week that Passover is a reminder of redemption. The, The blood of the lamb was to show the price that was paid for their freedom, for their redemption. If you'll remember the Hebrew people, they were in bondage in Egypt. They were under the tyranny of a cruel taskmaster. But God heard their cries. And he sent a man by the name of Moses, whose name means Savior. And he was to lead them out of bondage and lead them into freedom. And for hundreds of years, God's people took the same pilgrimage to the same city, to celebrate the same festival and to remember the same redemption. But this year, it's different. When all the other fathers selected their lamb for their family sacrifice, our heavenly father selects his lamb for his family sacrifice. Just as the earthly fathers were to inspect the lamb for four days to make sure it's without blemish and without spot. Our heavenly Father submits his lamb to be inspected and questioned and tested for four days so that people could see he is without blemish and he is without spots. The writer of Hebrews declared with certainty, Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Their inspection started as soon as he arrived triumphantly into Jerusalem. When he arrived, people began to connect the prophecies with the person. There were three revered positions within the Old Testament. The role of prophet, the role of priest, and the role of king. All three were established by God. The prophet was the mouthpiece of God, challenging the people to return to him. The priest was the representative of God, continually taking offerings before Jehovah. The king was the leader of God, given the task of governing God's people. Jesus' arrival showed glimpses of all three roles. There's three parts in, in Mark chapter 11, and there's one part in Luke chapter 19 that shows Jesus as prophet. For example, in Mark 11, two through seven, Jesus tells two of his disciples about a donkey, about where the donkey would be found, about what the donkey was for, and about what to say when somebody asks, why are you taking the donkey? We also find in chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. It is an act with unbelievable prophetic significance. Then in Mark 11, 15 through 17, he drives the money changers out of the house of God, an act very characteristic of Old Testament prophets. And then in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem in an act that's very reminiscent of Jeremiah as he would weep. He also fulfills the role of priest. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter seven, verses one through 10. When he enters Jerusalem, he does exactly what a priest would do. Based on Mark chapter 11, verse 11, it tells us that he went into the temple to inspect what was happening. He went in to make sure the house of God is in order. But when he arrives at the temple, he not only arrives as the priest, he also arrives as the sacrifice. Jesus also fulfills the role of king. He arrived in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that says that a peaceable king will come on a donkey's colt. People begin to lay down palm branches in front of him. They begin to sing in unison together, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen, here it is. Even the king, the king of Israel, he arrives as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. As people are singing his praises and singing Hosanna, there's a group of Pharisees who are in the crowd and they call out to him in Luke chapter 19 and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus, oh, he came out with the one-liner of the centuries. He said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You know what he's saying? You cannot stop the worship of the king. Yes. Creation, His own people may have rejected him and a part of the angels may have fallen and his disciples are about to turn their back on him. But our God always has a remnant. He's always got a group out there who will say, I'll continue to praise him even when I don't understand. I'll praise him when I, I don't see what I think I should see. There's going to be that group that is out there. He says, if these are quiet, the stones will cry out there is a theme of worship that's happening through these days. But Jesus' entrance also grabbed attention for another reason. It paralleled and it contrasted the way Roman emperors would come back into cities. As a symbol of bloody conquest, the Caesars chose a prancing horse at the head of a processional that would include part of their warriors, a shackled contingent of at least 5,000 conquered people, and an extravagant display of the spoils that they took by force. The celebration was to praise the leader, to display the prisoners, and to show off the bounty. But when our king came to the city, he came in in a completely different way. The horse symbolized the victory of war. The donkey symbolized the path of peace. One spoke of pride, the other spoke of humility. Behind Caesar was a procession of warriors. Behind Jesus were 12 ordinary men. Caesar paraded the thousands he'd conquered. Jesus displayed the thousands he'd set free. Caesar had prisoners as trophies of conquest. Jesus had followers as trophies of grace. Caesar had spoils to show all he got. Jesus had nothing to show all he gave. Here's the point, the values of God's kingdom are displayed in the entrance of her king. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is one that he comes in with the scent of worship on his feet the father's approval on his life the marks of a prophet priest and king displayed in his actions sunset comes and monday is now finished according to mark 11:11 11, 11, jesus walked through the temple he looked around and then he heads back to bethany because the hour is late so how do we respond to a message like that. Know that the theme of Palm Sunday and Monday is worship is happening. Worship is happening. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the style of music. It's not even about a Sunday service. Worship is the natural outflow of grateful people coming before a gracious God, offering a sacrificial gift because words alone are not enough. If you're a believer, a follower of Christ, what's your next step? I encourage you to ask God this question. How can I best express my worship to you? And whatever he lays on your heart there, obey. Ask God, are there things interfering with my worship? He'll answer. Before the service I was talking with Jim McBride, we were talking about this particular connection and he brought up this incredible thought. He says, Isaiah 61 or 66 verse one says, heaven, is my throne, and earth is my footstool. The imagery of that is we're all at the feet of God right now. It's not just Mary at his feet. We're all at his feet. The question becomes, what are you doing at his feet? Are you complaining at his feet? Are you griping at his feet? Are you angry at his feet? Are you condemning at his feet? Are you judgmental at his feet? Are you coming before him with pride and selfishness and pragmatism at his feet? Are you saying, but I don't like the song when you're at his feet? Are you saying, but I don't like what they did here when you're at his feet? My friends, we're at his feet. The issue is, are we there worshiping? Our king is going to be worshiped. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have no reason not to worship. None. We have victory. He's forgiven us. We have life. He brought us out of the grave and he gave us eternal life. He redeemed us. He set us on a path. He put a new song in our mouth. Even praise to our God. The Bible says many will see it and fear and trust in him. The Bible tells us what we have and who has us. We have no reason not to praise him. Worship is happening. Is it happening through you? You're going to be glad you came this morning because a thought hit me and you're going to be glad you're in the room. We worship until it costs us something. And sometimes all it takes is a little bit of rain before we say, you know what, I'll stay at home at a convenience. You all know I don't, I don't get up. I don't try to hammer people. I don't try to beat people with the word. I praise God that we have an online option when people are sick, when they're traveling, when, when they're at work and they can't be here. Praise God. But sometimes people just choose convenience because it's easier. How does that match up with what he did for us? So if you're a follower of Christ, ask him, is anything interfering in my worship? When I'm at your feet, what am I bringing? And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, my question would be, what's holding you back today from confessing your sin before Jesus and asking him for eternal life? The Bible says today is the day of salvation, now is the appointed time. The Bible tells us my spirit will not always strive with man. There is a dangerous thing that we do when people hear the voice of God saying, he's talking to you, he's talking to you, and they turn that voice away saying, I'll do it at another time. None of us know that we'll have another time. If today you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you have the sense inside of you, I need to know that Jesus, do not walk out of this room today without knowing, without a doubt that you have a relationship with him. I'm gonna ask you if you would to bow with me for just a moment, heads bowed, eyes closed. So many pieces. Today if you are not sure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you want to be, let me walk you through this. It only takes a moment. The Bible tells us that humanity was created for a relationship with God. The Bible tells us our sins separated us from that relationship. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us there was nothing that any of us could ever do to make things right ourselves. But Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose again three days later that we might have life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus. He's not asking you to clean up your life first He's not asking you to join a church first. He's not asking you to have all the answers first. The first thing that needs to happen is that you realize you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the only Savior. So in just a few moments, there's going to be some of our pastors and pastor's wives. It'll be right down at the front, and we're going to open up a a song of invitation, the altar is going to be open. If you want to know how it is that you can enter relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I beg of you today, come and talk to one of these pastors or pastor's wives. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you recognize you've been at his feet complaining, you've been at his feet distracted, you've been at his feet grumbling, and it's interfering with your worship, The altar is a place where things come to die. Use today as that day. The the altar will be open. Come confess it before God. Say, God, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. I confess it before you. Would you live worship through me? We got a gracious God. So I'm gonna have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would move in this place as you see fit. Lord, I pray today that we would have judgment day clarity when it comes to issues interfering with our worship. God, that there would be a brokenness inside. Lord, I pray for those right now in the room that do not know you as Lord and Savior, would today be the day they would come to know you. And God, we know that that has to happen because your spirit is the one doing it. So Lord, we submit before you. We need you. Would you alone do what only you can do? In Jesus' name, amen.